0: All right, sermon number three this morning from First Peter chapter 2. As I sat down and Estelle said, you had some preach in you this morning, don't you? And I wanted to tell her, buckle your seatbelts. It's just getting started. Amen. If I, don't have the pre- if I don't have the preach in me, it's time to retire. I mean, this is, this is the passion of my life to open God's word and to preach it to God's people and to allow the word to do its work in our life. Do you believe in that? Do you believe in the work of the word, that it's it's what conforms us into the image of Christ? And I am passionate about preaching God's word. So we are continuing week two in kingdom submission. I'm going to preach a message this morning titled, Injustice and the Example of Christ. Injustice and the Example of Christ. So let's go before the Lord in prayer and then we will jump into the text for today. Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and and hearing from you, Lord, it is your word that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces down into our hearts and it cuts and it separates and it, it exposes and it heals. And I pray that as we would hear your word today, that all those things would take place, that we would be cut, that we would be open, and we would be exposed and we would be healed today. And God, I pray that you would help your people to hear your word today with hearts of receptivity. I pray that you would help me today to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to quote Warren Wearsby. I have a, a commentary series by Warren Wearsby. I'll quote him on a regular basis because I just like a lot of the things that he says in his commentaries, And he's saying this about First Peter, this section we're covering. And this is from Warren Wearsby. He says, there is a shallow brand of popular theology today. It claims that Christians will not suffer if they are in the will of God. Those who promote such ideas have not meditated much on the cross. Those who promote such ideas have not meditated much on the cross. We know that to be true, don't we? That if our Lord suffered injustice, if our Lord suffered because of our sin and our our rebellion against him, if he suffered brutally, physically in his body, but he also suffered rejection, he also suffered isolation, he lived a life of suffering. If our Lord, who we worship, suffered, he was a man of sorrow and grief, acquainted with suffering. If that's what the prophet Isaiah says about our Lord, then wouldn't it be the truth that if we are following our Lord, that we are going to live lives of suffering? And that just because we're in the will of God doesn't mean that we are exempt from suffering. And we know that to be true. We know it to be true. And when we hear messages that point us in the opposite direction, if, if you just are in the will of God or you pray the right way or you quote the right scriptures, we know fundamentally that that's not true because scripture doesn't say that. And then our lived experience doesn't say that as well. How many of you know Christians that have been in the will of God and uh, God honoring Christians, but they suffer? They get cancer. They die too early in car accidents. Or you fill in the blanks all different ways in which people suffer and they're godly people. So we can never say just because we're godly that we don't suffer injustice or we're not wrongly treated or we don't go through difficult situations in our life. We can never say that. We can never say that because that's not what the Bible teaches and Peter is going to take this idea of submission and subjection to authority, but he's going to welcome into this subject the reality of injustice and suffering and being wrongly treated. He's going to welcome that into this text. And we can't forget the context of the letter and who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians who are in the will of God. They're serving God. They're dispersed all around the Roman, all around the Roman Empire, and they're experiencing persecution. So just like we talked about last week when he tells them that they need to be subject to the governing authorities, that would have been very challenging to them. To hear that, you're telling me i got to submit to Nero as emperor, I have to honor? What was his final exhortation? Honor the emperor as supreme. Wow. Can you imagine that, living in a world where the emperor, where you have an emperor, you have a dictator who really is supreme and they're oppressing you? Can you imagine hearing if I if we lived in that lived reality right now in America and I got up and told you to honor the emperor, some of you would throw stones at me. Some of you uh, yeah. Because we don't that, that 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 doesn't fit our world as Americans. But can you imagine actually living that? So now Peter's going to bring the reality of not only do you have to be sub- subjected to the governing authorities, but there's someone else you have to be subjected to. Let- let's look at the text here today. It's 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit and slaves, servants, and masters. And Peter is telling first century Christians, he's telling early church Christians who are spread abroad, dispersed around the Roman Empire, and they have masters over their life. He's telling them, be submitted to your masters, not just the ones that are good, because that's easy, but to the ones who are evil and unjust. So I see three big picture realities that will help us in our understanding and our response to suffering injustice and being wrongfully treated. Have you ever suffered injustice here today? Have you ever been wrongfully treated? Yeah, I think we, we, we all have in some way, shape, or form. If you live a life, if you live in the world where sin Sin rules in our society, and we're all susceptible to sin. We will sin against each other. We will hurt each other in a way where we suffer, where where because of our sin, you suffer. Because of my sin, you suffer, and it is unjust. And that plays itself out in many different ways in our society. So three big picture realities that will help us in our understanding and in our response to how we respond to injustice and suffering and being wrongfully treated. The first one, directly from the text, is that injustice and suffering is our common earthly experience. Injustice and suffering is our common earthly experience. Peter is telling them, look, I I acknowledge that you're going to have one or two realities of a master in your life. He's either going to be good or he's going to be gentle. They're going to be good or gentle or they're going to be harsh and unjust. And so this is the reality of our life. The injustice and suffering is common to us. But I want to deal with an area before we dig in deeper into the injustice and the suffering. And and anytime we deal with a section like this, I think there are questions that come to mind as Christians. When we look at the Bible and we think of servants and masters, there's questions that come up. And here's two of the questions I think that come up that need to be answered. First one is this. What was the historical context of the recipients of Peter's letter? What was the historical context of their relationship as servants or slaves? The word, it's, the word for servants there is the, the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Slaves and masters. What was the historical context? And then secondly, the other question that comes up is, does the Bible condone slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? So we're going to answer those questions and then we're going to get back into the broader context, which is what Peter is dealing with, which is unjust treatment and how do we respond? So I'm going to answer the second question first. Does the Bible condone slavery? So the answer is very simple. I'll say it here first, and then we'll, I'll show you through Scripture uh, what the answer is, what my answer is, why I answered that way. The Bible does not condone slavery. It does not condone slavery. And here's why I believe it does not condone slavery. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, states two things about slavery and about those who enslave others. Look at this text. Now we know that the law is good. This is the Apostle Paul. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for who? For the lawless and disobedient. It's a category of people. They're lawless, they're disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. For those who now what, what, what do these lawless and disobedient ungodly sinners who are unholy and profane what do they do? They strike their fathers and mothers. They're murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality enslavers, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what is contrary to sound doctrine? Homosexuality. Murder, the sexually immoral enslavers, liars, perjurers. That's contrary to sound doctrine. So those who are, listen, lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unholy, profane sinners describes the character of those who enslave people. That word enslaver literally is, has the meaning of those who, are, who would be slave traders, who purchase somebody for their own benefit, whether it's work-related or they... they They want to control someone else's life. They enslave them. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that the character of that person, they are unholy, they are lawless, they are disobedient, they are sinners, and they are profane. That's what the scripture says. And then it says this. Enslavers are those who buy or sell someone like a commodity for their own financial or work-related benefit, and this is contrary to sound doctrine. I don't think it could be any more clear Right there. First Timothy chapter 1. God does not condone slavery. Look at Galatians 3. Here's other biblical evidence that God does not con- condone slavery. This is Galatians 3, 27 through 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the picture there is that, the, is that in Christ, there is no distinction between who you are, what you look like, where you came from, that the dividing wall comes down in Christ. That's the picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. The Bible and the gospel does not condone slavery. That when we are in Christ, we're not male nor female. We're not black or white. We're not Asian or Hispanic. We are not Jew or Greek. We're not slave or free. We are all one in Christ. We all wear the banner of Christ. We don't bring our background to the table and say that I am this person first before I'm a Christian. No, as a Christian, I'm not a slave first, and then I'm a Christian. No, I'm a Christian first. So the gospel teaches. Then you go to creation. You go to Genesis. What does Genesis say about humanity? That all people are made in the image of God. And if all people are made in the image of God, that, that means every single person has intrinsic value and worth, not because of their station in life, not because of how much wealth they accumulate, but because that they are made in the image of God. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. And not one person, hear me, not one person can say to another person, I am better than you. I deserve more honor than you. I deserve to be treated differently than you. Nobody has the right to say that the Bible does not condone prejudice and racism and slavery. In fact, through what I'm saying here and other portions of scripture, we can see clearly that those who treat others differently because of the color of their skin. Those who treat others differently because of their socioeconomic background. They are, they are violating biblical truths. And it's clearly in scripture. The biblical reality of every person being made in the image of God. In the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that everyone is equal in value. And everyone, listen, this is what the Bible also says. That everyone is equally guilty before the God who created them. Because of sin. And everyone, no matter who you are, must repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first question. The second question, actually the second question I'm answering first. Does the Bible condone slavery? No, it does not. Second question, what is the historical context of those who Peter is writing to? So here, here is the historical context. They were slaves. They were slaves. It was not, it was not anything other than slavery, and that in first-century Rome, and as they're dispersed to the Roman Empire, there was really only two classes: there was the ruling class, and there was the, the the slave class, and there was no middle class that had their rights. You were either a ruler or you were a slave, and so all Peter is doing—he's not condoning slavery, which people have used to say that—he's addressing their reality. Listen, did you guys get that? He's addressing where they live. You're a slave. And, and I'm trying to tell you, and this is what was happening in the early church, is that these slaves were getting saved and they were saying, wait a minute, I'm free. I'm free in Christ, so you can't tell me what to do. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm gonna do what I wanna do now. And, and they were getting beaten for it and they were getting persecuted for it and Peter's trying to tell them, no, wait a minute, you have to be subject to your masters. You have to submit. It's not a condoning of it, it's a, it's a reality of, the situation that they live and that they have to respond correctly to where they are in their life. And so this is the historical background. The context is that Peter is addressing a common reality for Jewish believers living in the Roman Empire. The recipients of Peter's letter would have been part of some kind of slave and master relationship. And it's interesting, the context. Did you hear the the verse there? It says that some masters would have been kind towards their slaves. He even says that. It'd be easy, there's some that are kind and gentle, but you have to submit to the ones that aren't, that are harsh and unjust. It's the biblical reality. So suffering unjustly is the broader context. So he's addressing what they are walking through. Don't you glad that the God, God's word addresses what we're walking through and whatever we are walking through? Now, I will say this, I don't believe that there's anybody in here, and I thought about this very long before I said this, but I don't believe there's anybody in here that has suffered slavery In the same context that we see here in the Bible. Or even in our American history. Now I would venture to say. That there are some here. Who either you have experienced prejudice and racism. In our American society. Or your relative or your loved one may have. But I would venture to say. That all of us. No matter what the context is. Because of the color of our skin. Because of where we live. How much money we have or don't have. For no reason at all. We have experienced injustice, and we've been treated unfairly. Would you agree with that? All of us, in some way, shape, or form, have been unfairly treated. So the word of God not only, listen, that's so good. The word of God not only addresses what these Christians are dealing with right then, when they read this letter, they are slaves. And he's trying to help them in that relationship. And we're going to see how he helps them. It's so powerful. But it helps us as well. How many of you have been sexually abused in your life? injustice maybe 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 you're here today and and someone stole money from you and you thought it was somebody you could trust and they took money from you that's injustice maybe you got you got promised something that somebody didn't follow through that's injustice that's wrong you've been treated unfairly it's not fair all of us walk through injustice in this life and that is the broader context suffering unjustly is the broader context so injustice and suffering, as we've said earlier, is the common earthly experience. Now, Peter is saying, and I love how he contrasts, he says, he says, it's one thing to say that you would suffer well when you're guilty. How many of you know that when you commit a crime and you suffer for your crime and you endure it with a good attitude, you, you deserve that, right? Consequences come with choices. He says, good job. He's saying, good job. But I'm here to tell you that it is the grace of God in your life. It is, this is a gracious thing, he says. Is that whenever you suffer well, when you are unjustly treated, you didn't commit the crime. You are not guilty. You didn't have anything to do with it. And you still suffer. He says, that's the grace of God in your life. This is a gracious thing. You, do, do you guys see that? This is the powerful truth. Here's the truth. We all suffer injustice in varying ways. Every single one of us. Why? Why do we suffer? Injustice. Because we live in a world that is under the influence of Satan and because we live in a world that is filled with sinful people, which is every one of us. We Listen, we will never eradicate injustice and mistreatment in our society. We'll never eradicate it fully. It will never. Why Why is that? Because human beings, as long as they're living, are going to be unjust to people. Now, is it a good cause to stand up for those who have had unjust, unfair treatment? Absolutely. Scripture tells us that we, should, that we should care for the injustice in our world, that we should stand up and speak against injustice when we see it. But we have to wrap our minds around this reality that it will never be eradicated this side of heaven. And we can't, we can't get distracted thinking that, we, that our job is to, is to address that issue and we get s- sidetracked off of the actual answer to injustice and racism and unfair treatment, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you guys remember the statement I made last week? That we're not here to fix broken systems, we're here to fix broken hearts. As the church, we're not here to fix broken systems, we're here to fix broken hearts. So the question is not, will we ever eradicate injustice in this life? We won't. The only time the injustice is going to be gone is when we stand before the throne of God, as you see in Revelation. And we're all before him, worshiping God forever. And all will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. So that's not the question. That's not what we're after. The question is this. How will we respond to injustice against us? How will we respond? How will you respond? Listen, if you're an African-American brother or sister here, or you are of a a, a non-white race here, if you are Hispanic, you're Asian, and you experience injustice, the question is not, will injustice finally be done? The question is, how will I respond? Think to the context of what we're reading here, okay? It's not about, will it ever be done? And for us who've experienced injustice in our life in any way, shape, or form, the question is not, Will it, will it be gone? Can we eradicate it? That's not the question. That's not the biblical question. The question is, how do we respond to that injustice? That's the question. Now, I'm, I'm going to use a very trivial illustration. So I'm going to say that before so you understand. This is very trivial. But I want you to, I want to make a point, And it's been kind of very serious and very heavy. So I'm trying to get you to kind of relax a little bit with me. But whenever I was in Bible college... I worked at a TV station, and some of you have told this story previously, but I'm going to tell it again, but I worked at a TV station. I was um, 19 years old, and I was the master control technician, which sounds like a great job, but I made $12 an hour, and I simply made sure that all the commercials played on the TV station that should be played. I checked off, yep, the commercial for Tide played, the commercial for this played, to where they made sure they got their money's worth. That's what I did, and I worked the night shift, and and I lived in Baton Rouge. There was a TV station in Baton Rouge. And El- Alabama was coming to LSU to play. Alabama was coming to LSU to play. And I had never been to an LSU-Alabama game. And I bought tickets, and they were only $30 a piece on, in the bottom bowl. 30 bucks. So I buy the tickets, one for me, one for my dad. And I actually, before I bought them, I asked my boss, my immediate manager, I said, I'm scheduling this time. It was two weeks in advance to go to the LSU game. I told him what I was doing. And I bought these tickets. And it comes the day before the game on a Friday. My manager calls me and says, oh, by the way, you need to come in on Saturday to come work. And I said, no. I scheduled off. No. And I was like, I'm not. He said, yeah, you are if you want your job. I just was furious. I had bought the money. I bought the tickets, spent my money, and I was bringing my dad. It was a special time. And so I went home, and I was just fuming. What am I going to do? And so I wrote a letter to the, to the general manager. And some of you think, good for you. I'm going to talk about that later in my message. Good for you. Stand up for yourself. Stand up for your rights. You put it on the schedule. Should have let you off. That's unfair. And it was. I wrote the letter and I told the general manager how unfair it was. I put it under his death, under his door. And the next day he got the letter and he called me and said, You can go to the game. You can go to the game. And my immediate manager had to work and I felt so good. I felt so good. I felt so vindicated. I was like, yes, I was right. He was wrong, and I got my rights, and I'm here to tell you here this morning, I was wrong. I was wrong. Now, I know that doesn't work out in all of our brains, and you think, yeah, but he was wrong, and you stood up for your rights, and you got to go to the game, and LSU won. It was a wonderful game, and all of that, but my heart was wrong. I usurped My immediate manager's authority. I went around him and did it in a rebellious way. And I know that's trivial. Some of you have experienced injustice and unfair treatment far beyond uh, an issue of, of time off from your job. So what is our response? And that leads us to the next big picture view. It leads us to what Peter is saying here. So he's speaking to the reality that yes, you are being treated unfairly as slaves. And for us, our context, yes, you will receive unfair treatment. You will be abused and neglected. You will be looked over. You will be cursed. You'll be cursed for your faith. You'll be cursed for no reason. You'll experience all the types of injustice that happens in a world because we live in a bro- broken world. But how do we respond? What do we do? Peter gives the answer. A second thought is this right from the text. Our, sinners, our sinless Savior gives us his example. How do we do it? We look to Christ. Look at the text. For to this you have been called. So he says, you've been suffering unjustly. And he tells him, to this you have been called. Can you imagine? Very similar to last week. Peter, are you serious? i got to submit to Nero and you're telling me, my unjust, unfair master who's abusing me and neglecting me and persecuting me, you're telling me to this I have been called? That doesn't preach, my brothers and sisters. That's not good preaching. That's not a good sermon. You don't get amens and high fives and preacher, brother. Because y'all aren't saying that right now. <laughs> but it's true, it doesn't preach. But the Bible says it for to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Doing what? Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Our sinless savior has given us an example to follow. And I want us to think about who Jesus was. Jesus was sinless. Okay? So this is not apples to apples. Peter is saying we've got to follow his example. But it's not an apples to apples example. Because I'm sinful, Jesus was not. So if, 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 if the word of God is telling me to follow Christ's example, I could say, I could call foul and say, well, well wait a minute. It's not fair because he never sinned. How is this fair? How is it? Like... This doesn't make any sense. It's not a, a, it doesn't seem to be a direct connection. There's only one person who has ever lived a sinless life. And that person was Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus was the most righteous person who ever lived. And because of that reality, listen, he was the most mistreated. Because of, of that reality, he was the most mistreated. I want us to think about that. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that when we've been mistreated or we've been neglected or we've been the, the victim of racism or injustice. We, we, it's hard for us to think about that. But it is true. As Jesus, as a sinless sacrifice, as a sinless man, the God-man, he was the most mistreated in human history. No matter what the injustice is, Jesus experienced the greatest injustice ever experienced on earth. So what makes... The example of Jesus so profound for us to look at. What makes it so profound is that Jesus took the complete opposite approach that we often take when we're mistreated. What's the approach that we take? We write the letter. We slide it under the door. We, we call foul. We say unfair. That's what we do. We want vengeance. We retaliate. We open our mouth. We stand for our rights. What did Jesus do? He said no. He didn't, he didn't revile. Listen. Look back at the text. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Simply put, Jesus did not retaliate. What's our natural response when we're, when, when we're wronged? To retaliate. I'm looking at my precious little three-year-old son there, Lincoln. He doesn't really know what's going on. Hey, Lincoln. See, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't know what's happening. Uh, you saw me, huh, buddy? See, Reagan sometimes will come up to Lincoln and Reagan Reagan will hit Lincoln. Reagan's pretty rough. Reagan will take Lincoln's toys. Reagan will just, for no reason at all, hurt Lincoln. And what does Lincoln do? Lincoln will retaliate. I didn't have to teach Lincoln to retaliate. Lincoln retaliates from the depth of the rebellion in his heart. And he says, you take my toy, I'm going to hit you. You take my cookie, I'm going to take your cookie. We, we, we don't even have to teach that to our kids. And that ingrained retaliation, vengeance, getting back at somebody who's wronged us, that is natural to us. That is how we live. But what did Jesus demonstrate? Not only did, not only did he preach to not retaliate, but he lived what he preached. Look at what Jesus preached, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. (laughs) It's so hard for us. Don't resist the one that is evil. That's just so, that's like foreign language to us. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, hey, here's the other one, buddy. You, You can have that too. We don't think that way, do we? You slap me, I'm coming for you. Turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, I don't know why they'd be suing you for your tunic, but <laughs> it must be a nice tunic. Let him have your cloak as well. So you're tunicless and cloakless. Give it all to him. They want they want your money? Give them your house. This is like can you imagine? Just think about the context people live in. They thought Jesus was crazy. Let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go, to, to go a mile, which I've always asked the question, how did they force you to go to, to go a mile? I don't know. But you don't force somebody to do something unless there's some, some type of violent something happening. Or they've, they've, um, they've got you, uh, I can't think of the word off the top of my head, they've, got, uh, black, they've they blackmailed you. They've got some information on you and they're forcing you to do something. And you say, hey, I know you got blackmail on me. Don't worry about the blackmail. I'm gonna go another mile. I'll go above and beyond. Someone who slaps you on the right cheek, someone who sues you and takes something from you, someone who forces you to do something against your will, that would fit nicely in the enemy category, wouldn't wouldn't it? Someone who slaps you, sues you. Have you ever been sued before? Anybody ever been sued? Anybody? You wouldn't admit it probably. But some of you I know have been sued in here. Wouldn't the person that sued you fit nicely in the enemy category? They're not your best friend, I tell you that much. How did Jesus respond to his enemies? Look at, look at Luke 23, verses 33 through 34. This is at the height of the crucifixion. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Christ is our example when we are unjustly treated. He didn't revile. He didn't retaliate. In fact, he prayed for his enemies. He prayed for his accusers. He prayed for those who, who treated him unjustly. He said, Father, forgive them. And Peter, I, please, please, please listen. Don't forget the context that Peter is speaking to. He's speaking to slaves who are being mistreated by evil masters. And he's telling them that you must submit yourself to them. And so in this context of Christ as our example, he's using Christ as an example and he's telling them, look to Christ. He's saying, I know you're living in unjust treatment and I know you've been abused and neglected and persecuted. And I don't know all the situations you've gone on, happened in your life, the people that have hurt you. But Peter is telling them and he's telling us, if you want to know how to respond to that, look to Christ. Christ didn't get vengeance. He didn't seek after vengeance. He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for them. And I love Jesus because Jesus didn't just preach, but he practiced. Notice I showed you in Luke 23, he prayed for his enemies. Well, that's what he preached. Look back at the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Similar principle in 1 Peter there. Where Peter is saying, if you suffer because you do evil, what reward do you have? You have a reward when you suffer graciously when you are innocent. Jesus is our example. Listen to me. Listen to this. What a powerful example Christ has left for us. And this is what Peter is saying to Christians living in the middle of intense persecution. With enemies all around. And and for us, listen, in the middle of a rights first society, in the middle of a retaliatory culture, in a world that champions vengeance and retribution, how many taken movies have been made? Is it we're on to like taken 10 now? Liam Neeson's still making retribution and vengeance sells. You guys know the movie Count of Monte Cristo was a movie made from a book as a book first? Why do we love that movie? It's payback. He's in jail for all these years, and he gets back, and and he gets all these millions and millions of dollars. He finds the treasure, and he systematically makes every single person pay, and we love it, but it's not biblical. In a world that champions vengeance and retribution, in a so happy society, Jesus' life stands as a beacon of light in a dark world. May his light shine through our lives as we walk through seasons of injustice and mistreatment. May his light shine through us as we model what Jesus showed us as the way to live in the middle of a sin-sick world. How could Jesus do it? Now, that's my question. How could he do it? And how can any of us? Again, I, I, I want to say it again. I don't know what you're walking through, the injustice you've experienced, the abuse, the neglect. Just, we could go on and on and talk about all the ways that were not fair, it was not right. How does any of us get on the other side of that with hearts of love towards God and love towards those to pray for those who've hurt us? How did Jesus do it? Some may say, well, it was because he was God in the flesh. That's how he did it. Well, the Bible doesn't give us that out. What does the Bible say in Hebrews 4? It says that Jesus was in every point tempted as we were, yet without sin. So what does that mean? If he was in every point tempted as we were, yet without sin, what does that mean? It means that Jesus was tempted to be sinful in an angry way. It means that he was tempted to retaliate. When they ripped his beard out, he was tempted to retaliate. He was tempted to speak harshly to those who spoke harshly to him. Fill in the blanks. He was tempted yet without sin. He is our example. So how did Jesus do it? How can we do it? How can we respond in a Christ-like way when we've been mistreated and we've experienced injustice? Look back at the text. 1 Peter 2, 23b-25. But continued... He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's my third point here today, third big picture reality, that the one who always judges righteously will have the final say. The one who always judges righteously will have the final say. That's how Jesus did it. Is that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's it. That is the answer. Jesus entrusted himself to his father in heaven who always judges justly. And this is our example. And I love how it says he continued entrusting himself. That means he continually had opportunities to be offended. He continually had opportunities to not trust that God knew what he was doing. Just like we have that tendency. Retaliation is the way of the world. Vengeance and retribution is the way of the world. Payback and getting what they deserve is the way of the world. Hear me, hear me. Payback and getting what they deserve is the way of the world. It's the way of an evil society. As I said earlier, Hollywood makes millions and millions of dollars off of that storyline. Because it sells. But the way of a Christ-like life is to continually entrust Our lives and our situations to a God who sees and a God who knows and a God who holds the scales of justice in his hands. He holds the scales of justice in his hands. He will ultimately repay evil, evil for evil. Right? He will ultimately judge those who have done evil in this life. And what's beautiful about the scales of justice is that we don't get what we deserve. Payback stories may sell in America, but Peter ends his exhortation in a way that may lead some to think he was changing subjects. It is interesting. Go back to the text there. Look at verse 24 through 25. So he just says that Jesus, the way he did it, the way he suffered unjustly and did it and didn't revile and didn't retaliate was that he continued entrusting his soul to a God who judges justly. And it's almost like he changes the subject. He says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls and I can hear the readers of the letter saying Peter why are you changing subjects here yeah we know Jesus died on the cross what does it have to do with my injustice what does it have to do with those that are persecuting me he died on the cross yeah I get it but we know Peter doesn't change subjects until the next verse and that's what we're talking about next week It says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Ladies, you coming next week? That's the the change of the subject. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject to your husbands. So he's not changing the subject. And as I'm looking at it, I can can picture and hear the reader saying, what does this have to do with what I'm walking through right now? That Jesus bore my sins. That I was straying, but now I've returned. What does it have to do with injustice and how they've hurt me 20 years ago and how I've been wounded deeply and I still haven't gotten over that and, and I'm still struggling with the hurt and the pain. What does that have to do with anything, Peter? And as I was studying it, it just clicked. And it was so profound. Listen to this. I believe I believe that what this these two verses do is that it gives us a front-end alignment of our thinking. When we look at the cross, when we look at the cross, it aligns us correctly when we're thinking about injustice and unfair treatment. How does it do that? Well, what's a front-end alignment? I don't know exactly. But I know that when I'm driving my car and I take my hands off the steering wheel and the car goes to the right or goes to the left, I'm going, I'm going to Goodyear. I'll just tell you where I go. I'm going to Goodyear. And David Chasson, if he's in here, he's going to take a look at my car. And, and so... I, I don't know exactly how a front-end alignment works or how it happens. It's like I don't know much about my car other than the oil change and putting gas in it. But I know that when that happens and I start to drift, that I need a front-end alignment. Now, what happens when they take it into the shop and they, and they do the front-end alignment? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happens, but I know that afterwards, it, you know, I can take my hands off the wheel and it's driving straight. So a simplistic understanding of what a friend in alignment is, is that your vehicle has gotten off the standard. It's gotten off the center point, right? Would that be right? Any mechanics here? I, I guess, I don't know, I don't know. That's, yeah, okay, good, thank you, thank you. It's gotten off the center point. So you've got to be aligned to center to where you can drive straight. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for us. When we are bitter, when we are angry, when we, when we want payback, when we want vengeance, when we want to retaliate, when we want to revile in return, when we don't want to turn our left cheek over, we want to, we want to slap back, we want to fight back, we want to stand for our rights, we want payback, when we want all those things and we're lost in the weeds of our injustice and our mistreatment, the gospel stands as a front end alignment that says, no, wait, like I got to remind you of something. He bore our sins. He bore our sins. What does that mean? The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us this. Peter began his exhortation by saying, you've been mistreated and it's not just. He begins his exhortation by telling him, you are been, you've been wrong and it's not right listen now he ends his exhortation by saying jesus was mistreated for you and it was not right it was not just it was not just it was not just because you are the guilty ones you are the perpetrator you guys you guys get this you guys, follow me Thought it would just be silent for a little while. Just think about that. Seriously, I know I've been talking a lot. I talk a lot. I mean, it's completely contradictory. When I was in my study and I'm looking at that, I'm like, "How am I going to conclude with the gospel? How, how am I going to conclude with this picture of the atonement and injustice?" And, and, and it was like, just it clicked. That's Peter. the Holy Spirit had Peter put that there so that those that are in the middle of injustice would remember that they are perpetrators. I wouldn't write that tale. If someone comes to me, I wouldn't tell them, oh, by the way, I'm going to help you with your injustice and your mistreatment to tell you that you're guilty too of the same thing. Like, that's not a recipe for healing hearts. From a human perspective, That's a recipe for offense. But the gospel flips everything on its head. It flips the world on its head. And it says that, yes, you've been mistreated. Yes, you've been abused. Yes, you've been neglected. Yes, you've been overlooked. And and yes, all those things are true. But the way that you are going to handle all those realities correctly is that you have to see that you did the same thing to Christ. God's word reminds us that we are the perpetrators as well. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ tears away every excuse that we might have for not coming to him. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us that front end alignment and puts everything in its proper perspective. So I want to end like this. I, I want to see justice. God is a God of justice. I hate to look around our world and see injustice. It doesn't reflect God's character. God is a God of truth and righteousness. He's a God of justice and we should champion Justice. But our message is, is that in the brokenness, this is the message of the church, this is the message of the gospel, that in the middle of the brokenness, when we look at the world and those who have experienced injustice, they, we don't help them unless we tell them the truth that they are guilty of the same sins that were committed against them because Christ died for their sins and he was sinless. And that's the help that we all need. So I don't know what you've been hanging on to for all these years. Maybe there's some of you here today, you've been hanging on to anger in your heart for all these years about what's been done to you. The answer to your problem is not retribution. The answer to your problem is not them getting what they deserve in a temporary sense. The answer to your problem is, is that you would see that in Christ, you can be free. You can be free from the anger. You can be free from the from the desire to have temporary earthly fulfillment. And that you can understand that the one who committed the crime against you, that God loves them as well. And that the gospel is for them. That's what the gospel does. You guys follow me? So I have three questions as we end. Will you come to him today? And surrender your right to be right? That's what the gospel calls us to do. That's the text. Did you just not see that in 1 Peter 3? Did you see it? That's the text. Surrender your right to be right. Why? Because Christ gave us the example. Second question. Will you surrender your desire for vengeance? I don't know who's hurt you. I don't know what you're walking through. But will you surrender your desire for vengeance? And thirdly here, thirdly here today, the culmination of the text, will you place the injustice and mistreatment you've experienced in the hands of the shepherd and the overseer of your soul? Will you, will you do that today? Would you stand to your feet with me? I want to close in prayer. Just just close your eyes? I just want you to, I want you just between you and the Lord here. We have so many varying backgrounds and so many varying situations and histories and and I know that my, my lived experience is not your lived experience, and so for some of you, you 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 may have this sense during my whole message of of yeah, but, but Pastor Ben, you don't know because because you haven't walked through what I've walked through, Pastor Ben, you don't know because because you've not experienced what I've experienced. And, and I, I will admit that, that that is absolutely true. My lived experience is not your lived experience. But is our lived experience the, the, the standard for truth? Or is God's word in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so I want to challenge you here today, no matter what your lived experience is and what you've walked through in these areas of injustice, mistreatment, abuse, you've been treated unfairly. I pray that today, that as, as I close in prayer, that you would surrender all of that over to the Lord. Say, God, I'm tired of carrying these burdens. And I release those that have hurt me. I've released those who've offended me, those who've treated me unfairly and unjustly. I release them into your hands that you are the shepherd and overseer of my soul. And I trust you with that. So God, that's what we do here today. God, we just surrender it all to you. No matter what our lived experience is and what we've walked through, God, we release all of those injustices over to you to a God who is just. And God, may the gospel of Jesus Christ give us that front-end alignment in our thinking so that we can evaluate reality correctly so that we cannot, so we won't just live in what we see right in front of us, but we would have a perspective change to understand that that we are the perpetrators, that we, because of our sins, that is what put Jesus on the cross, the sinless Savior. And God, I pray for all of those that our suffering. I pray that you would help them, heal them. Help them to walk through this season and find healing and hope and help. God, may we always, may we always point to the real answer to sin, which is Christ. And may we do it with passion and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. You are dismissed.